Hello, my friends. Welcome to this week's episode. You'll notice that as of today, I'm debuting a more streamlined format for the podcast. There are a couple reasons for this. First of all, I've really been straining at the edge of my resources recently, particularly my physical resources. And I have a ton of things on my plate that are not being properly addressed, including an application for German dual citizenship, some physical matters that need tending to, and also just some time that I need to figure out how to best continue with the podcast to bring my listeners what they really want to hear and what I have within my capabilities to present to them. So I'm looking for a publicist, I'm looking for a social media assistant, and I'm also trying to upgrade my hardware. I had a major loss recently when I dropped a five terabyte hard drive that contained everything from the podcast and all of my dubbed LPs, all of my ripped CDs. I lost everything and it's not retrievable. So that is another challenge that I face. Anyway, that's all to say that I realized I couldn't possibly roll out season five of the podcast within the next three weeks. But I do want to continue bringing you really interesting material, and I do think that this week's episode is the debut of something that may very well be more to your liking, and certainly more within my capabilities. I will also continue to produce bonus material in these intervening months before Season 5 debuts in January 2024. I do hope that if you are interested in subscribing, you will continue to do so. I certainly need and welcome your support in that regard. If you're so moved, please go to patreon.com countermelody, where you can become a supporter of the podcast on either a monthly or a yearly basis. I'll probably be reconfiguring my Patreon structure as well as I go through a lot of soul-searching and questioning of the best way to continue with the podcast. But trust me, I am continuing. I recognize the importance of my work, and I recognize your importance as listeners and supporters in continuing to provide me with a platform for that. I really do think of this podcast in terms of the little engine that could. I started from absolutely nothing, and I've already had more than 52,000 downloads of the podcast and an increasing number of interested listeners and subscribers. So that, to me, is an enormous thing, especially considering that over four seasons of this podcast now, I have not missed one single week. And I don't intend to from now until the end of the year either. So that said, let's go into this week's streamlined episode. I do not want to say mini episode. I'm going to call it a streamlined episode instead. And I do think you'll find it a very interesting topic. So thanks for listening. And here goes. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. Each week, you will encounter me, Daniel Gundlach, as your host, guiding you along a magical route 
that will bring us closer to the voices of those singers that most enchant and transform us, no matter what else is going on in the world. Thank you for joining me on that path. And now, this week's episode. I once made the rather exalted claim that every month at Counter Melody was Black History Month. I must confess I have not done as much in recognition of artists of color recently, but this episode should be of great interest to all of you who are interested in that topic. Today, we're going to explore the career of the soprano Ellabelle Davis. She was born in 1907 in New Rochelle, New York, and died there in the year 1960 at the age of 53. Over the course of her short life, she nonetheless made a very important contribution to music and concert life around the world, especially in the late 40s and early 50s. And we're going to examine that contribution in this episode. On the journey now, my on the journey well, I wouldn't take nothing, Mount Zion, for my journey now, Mount Zion. One day, one day, I was walking along. Well, the elements open, and the love come down, Mount Zion. On my journey now, Mount Zion, my journey now, Mount Zion. Well, I wouldn't take nothing, Mount That was a recording that Ella Bell Davis made with the pianist Hubert Greenslade for London Records in the year 1950. It's, of course, the Harry Burley arrangement of the very popular spiritual On My Journey. And we're going to trace that journey right now. Now, some of this is going to sort of reek of the white savior and be really reflective of what race relations, for want of a better term, were like during the late 40s and early 50s. 
But let me just read you from the liner note on the back of uh, the first of Ella Bell Davis's two recordings for London Records. In the short time of five years, the young American soprano Ella Bell Davis has emerged from comparative obscurity to take her place among the handful of truly great singers of the century. Wow. Today, throughout the leading music centers of Europe, the United States, Mexico, and South America, her name ranks with the greatest. Miss Davis's tour of Europe in the 1948-49 season, which ended with appearances in the British Isles and at Holland's Scheveningen festivals, gained her headlines from the leading newspapers of Paris, London, Copenhagen, Stockholm, The Hague, Genoa, and Prague. Sensational revelation, they said. Delirious enthusiasm. Thundering applause. A star shining in the heavens of song. An art of singing so unique as to defy description. One of the greatest experiences one remembers. A phenomenal success. To quote only a few. In the summer of 1949, Miss Davis, who has sung with virtually every leading symphony orchestra under such conductors as Serge Gusevitsky, Eugene Ormandy, Dmitry Mitropoulos, Fabian Sevitsky, and Leonard Bernstein, made her first appearance in New York's Lewison Stadium with the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, Ephraim Kurtz conducting. Later in August, she appeared as guest soloist at the Hollywood Bowl, Eugene Ormandy conducting. Miss Davis was born in New Rochelle, New York. Her parents ran a grocery store, and though she loved music and sang constantly for her own enjoyment and in school groups, an artistic career seemed impossible. There was simply no money to finance it. Miss Davis became a dressmaker and was, quote, discovered by a client during a session of fittings when she quite unconsciously, though appropriately enough, sang the famous aria Depuis le jour from Louise as she worked. Now, we don't have a recording of Elabel Davis singing the Louise aria, but we do have a recording from approximately the year 1950 that Elabel Davis made for the Philips record label, a 78 of the Alfred Bachelet song Chère Nuit. It's one of those delicious parlor songs from the late 19th century that are really very operatic in scope and really show the beauty of her voice. I believe these recordings were probably made in Copenhagen around the year 1950. She is heard on these two Philips 78s with the pianist Kjell Olsen, and we're going to hear a portion of the Chère Nuit right now.
Now, this is the somewhat cringy part of this liner note, but there's more here than might meet the eye. Her benefactress saw to it that Miss Davis was given the best vocal training possible, and in October 1944, she made her New York debut in a sensationally successful town hall recital. On that now historic occasion, Virgil Thompson, New York Herald Tribune music critic, wrote, So sumptuous a soprano voice, impeccably schooled and nowhere wanting in power, combined with a platform presence both handsome and gracious, is indeed welcome in our concert routine. Concerts followed in Boston, an appearance as soloist with the Indianapolis Symphony, and a performance with the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra at Carnegie Hall. In a single season, the extraordinary new singer had earned praise and ovations from press and public, such as have been reserved for few artists in this country's musical history. When Ella Bell Davis made her first concert appearance outside the United States at the historic Palace of Fine Arts in Mexico City, she was launched on a succession of triumphs such as few other singers today have known. Nationwide American tours followed. Then came her conquest of Europe, best described in an issue of the musical Courier. This is a news story. It is the factual record of the success of a young American soprano whose European reception was as spontaneous as it was genuine and unpurchased. The releases coming from overseas read like the memoirs of another day, a time when singers were reigning luminaries. It was indeed one of these all-rewarding tours which are seldom paralleled. As I mentioned, Elabel Davis made two 10-inch LPs for London Records, one of which featured spirituals, which we've already sampled, and another which featured on one side two operatic arias and on the other side Lieder by Schubert and Richard Strauss. So we're going to sample a little bit of that second LP. She sings two opera arias. In my opinion, this was not the most comfortable repertoire for Elabel Davis's gifts. But in spite of that, she sings quite beautifully the wonderful aria from Catalani's La Vallée, E ben ne andrò lontana, and she's heard here under the baton of Warwick Braithwaite leading the new symphony orchestra. Ella Bell Davis is not a singer comparable to someone like Callas or Scotto, who would lavish wonderful portamenti on this music, a fil di voce, sforzato attacks, all of those things that are the lifeblood of this music and make it spring to life. And yet she brings a simplicity, a sincerity, and she brings an enormously healthy voice. All of these things combine to make a very effective, if not exactly stylistically on point performance.
Now, I commented on the fact that there's a bit of the sort of white savior narrative going on surrounding the story of Ellabelle Davis working as a seamstress and then finding a patron who helped put her forward on the concert stage. But let's consider for a moment the question of just who that patron was. She was named Louise Crane. She lived from 1913 to 1997, and she was the daughter of Winthrop Murray Crane, a millionaire and former governor of the state of Massachusetts. Her mother co-founded the Museum of Modern Art. And not only that, and this is what I find most interesting, is that she was an out lesbian who was partnered with, and indeed is buried next to, Victoria Kent, who was a Spanish lawyer and Republican politician. Louise Crane was also a dear friend of both the poet Marianne Moore and the playwright Tennessee Williams and did much to support their careers. In 1941, she developed a passionate interest in Billie Holiday, whose career she also supported and to some extent underwrote. So when we see that portrait of Ella Bell Davis posing for Auld Lang Syne, kneeling at the feet of Louise Crane, pretending to make an adjustment to her gown, that's being framed for the audience that loved that sort of narrative. But I do think that it was, at least I hope it was, more of a relationship that was framed in mutual respect. If you're interested in seeing that photo, by the way, I must comment that both the New York Public Library and the Detroit Public Library have amazing digital archives. And the New York Public Libraries, of course, is associated with the Schomburg Center in Harlem, which evidently has a large repository of Ellabelle Davis's papers. I've reproduced a number of those photos on the show notes page to this episode. So if you go to countermelodypodcast.com, you can see many of those, including the one of Davis posing at the side of Louise Crane. Remember that the great Camilla Williams also got her first big break as a result of the intervention of the soprano Geraldine Farrar. And let's face it, Leontine Price also had the support of a white patron. So this was a very common narrative in those days. You know, for artists of color from that era, that's often how they first were able to find a larger platform for their work and their artistry. Now let's listen to another excerpt from the flip side of that 10-inch LP, the side featuring Lieder. This is the Schubert song Lachen und Weinen, set to a text by Friedrich Hürkert. Once again, the pianist is Hubert Greenslade. It's here that we note that Elabel Davis did not have the most perfect or refined German diction, but she has a wonderful sense of how to convey the meaning of the text. In this case, a questioning of how one single person can go from such highs and lows as the poet and Schubert himself are encountering over the course of a single day. How can I wake up in tears and find myself in the evening laughing or vice versa? 
I also spent some time today researching appearances of Elabel Davis in the pages of the New York Times. There are many reviews of her various concerts, including numerous ones at Town Hall, her appearance, as mentioned in the liner notes at Lewiston Stadium with the New York Philharmonic, Carnegie Hall concerts, and in fact, this review in particular by Harold Schoenberg from December 1950 of Ella Davis in a town hall recital is worth quoting. Giving her first New York recital in two years, the soprano Ella Davis was heard last night in town hall singing a well-devised program of music by Mozart, Strauss, Rieti, Brahms, Perry, Burley, and Work with Edward Hart at the piano. This was quite a different type of singing and almost a different type of voice than Miss Davis featured in her previous recital. At that time, she was prodigal of voice, carelessly handling top notes and glorying in a voice of extraordinary sheen. Last night, though, there was a decided edge to the sound, just as there was an appreciable gain in musicianship. It took Miss Davis a little time to warm up, but when she reached the Strauss songs, after her opening Mozart concert arias, considerably more freedom was noticed. Some handsome singing was accomplished here, and the approach was completely musical, but comparing the actual results with the potential results of what could be so magnificent a voice, the total was a little disappointing. So there's always this kind of reservation about her work encountered in reviews. This also happens in the review of her debut as Aida in Mexico City. And when I was listening to these recordings, I did note that there sometimes was what I guess I would call a certain lack of polish. And it's almost as if she were being put forward before she was really even ready to receive that kind of exposure and acclaim. In this regard, I'd like to read just a little bit from this magnificent book by the scholar Kira Thurman who has written this book called Singing Like Germans that I've often talked about on this podcast. Here she's talking about why the State Department was so eager to present Porgy and Bess on a tour sponsored by the State Department. 
By the 1950s, it had become necessary to find effective means of combating the USSR's acerbic and accurate accusations of deeply institutionalized racism in the United States. In 1951, the U.S. State Department acknowledged that, quote, no American problem receives more widespread attention than our treatment of racial minorities, particularly the Negro, end quote. Although the USSR had pointed out American racial problems since the 1920s, during the Cold War, race and foreign policy became inextricably linked. In 1946, for example, Secretary of State James Burns engaged in a skirmish with the USSR over voting rights in the Balkans. After protesting that the USSR was denying the rights of some of its citizens to vote, he received a short retort, quote, the Negroes of Mr. Burns, end quote, were denied the same rights. To numerous officials, that statement was, quote, a checkmate of the first order. The United States' woeful racial inadequacies were in the spotlight on the world stage and had the potential, as many saw it, to become the largest stumbling block in the nation's world policy. In sending African-American performers abroad, the United States hoped to challenge international opinion of American society. So this could very well be perceived as a reason that Ella Bell Davis was presented on the world concert stages to act as an ambassador for not only for the United States, but God forbid for quote-unquote her race. In fact, I submit to you that Ella Bell Davis was exactly the right artist to be promoted at this point in time. She had a certain dignity of bearing. She had humility. She was not pretentious. She was rather self-effacing. She was not at all haughty. She didn't have any negative characteristics that were often attributed to black people, but rather she had a sincerity and simplicity that deeply moved those that hurt her. This alongside a voice that was undeniably beautiful, even though in some ways it was not as fully refined or developed as one might have expected, especially given some of those critiques that we were hearing on the liner notes. But I suggest to you that Ella Bell Davis is one of the most important singers providing that link between the era of Roland Hayes and Marian Anderson and that of Leontine Price and those who followed in her footsteps. So often in the press one reads about Ella Bell Davis, especially in the 1950s, we hear all of these remarks about how she is such a wonderful representative of her race. While that makes me very uncomfortable, I have to say, on the other hand, that when we hear Ella Bell Davis singing spirituals, that there is a naturalness, there is an ease, there is a familiarity, there is such a strong sense of identification that I become aware of what her greatest virtues were. 
So let's just listen to two more of the spirituals that were featured on that second London Decca 10-inch LP, the one that featured spirituals. First, the celebrated arrangement by Florence Price of My Soul's Been Anchored in the Lord. Side two of the spirituals record features spirituals arranged for orchestra, which is conducted by Viktor Olof, who lived from 1898 to 1974 and was a violinist and conductor, but also later a record producer for Decca Records. On a reissue of these recordings in the year 1965, the arrangements are credited to one Oetz, who after a bit of research, I believe refers to the Dutch pianist, organist, and arranger Mani Oetz, who lived from 1917 to 2009 and worked as a pianist with the Metropole Orchestra and also later as an arranger and music director. They're kind of hokey arrangements, but they also reveal something of how people wanted to hear this music in those years. The selection we're going to hear is less familiar, but extremely beautiful. I Stood on the River of Jordan, and this is one of Ella Bell Davis's most eloquent recordings, I think. Thank you. 
there's just one more reference to Elabelle Davis in the New York Times that I would like to share with you, and that is, sadly, her obituary, published on Wednesday, November 16th, 1960. Elabelle Davis, a soprano, died of cancer today at the New Rochelle Hospital. She was 53 years old. One of the outstanding Negro singers of the last two decades, Miss Davis established herself in the early 1940s as a singer gifted with a voice of unusual natural beauty and as a refined and sensitive artist with a rare sense of style, as the New York Times described her after her debut recital. I'm cutting ahead here. Her last appearance in New York was in 1959, when she was soloist in Carnegie Hall with the National Symphony Orchestra, singing Richard Strauss's four last songs. She was obliged to cancel a town hall recital in New York, scheduled for last month. And indeed, I don't know the details, but it appears that for a number of years, the soprano had suffered with cancer, and had been forced to curtail her singing career. And I found an advert from Musical America heralding the return of Ella Bell Davis to the concert platform. In the accompanying photograph, she looks older. She does not look terribly well. Clearly, that return was short-lived. But how lucky we are to have documentation of this wonderful artist. Not all of her recorded performances are on the same level, but the very best are astoundingly good. I'm going to close the episode with the final selection among her leader selections, the very challenging song by Richard Strauss, Befreit, set to a text by Richard Demel. This is a song that is sung to a beloved partner who is at the doorway of death. Ella Bell Davis brings an enormous dignity and vocal accomplishment to this song. I was really knocked out by it. I have to say, I'm so glad that I was able to share her with you today. Here she is now with pianist Hubert Greenslade in Befreit.
Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.